You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So I want you to consider the badge of an FBI agent. It's a small miniature shield, perhaps an eagle crested on it, rare, uh, but that's fairly, uh, that's not, that's about it. There's not much else going on with it. Inherently, the badge does nothing. Um, it's, it's a badge typically worn around the belt, and while it may produce a shine and glitter, it has no inherent value in making, it, making you do anything. Um, but when the badge is worn by an FBI agent who has been sworn in by the United States government to work for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and that agent comes and knocks on your door, and they flash their badge, all of a sudden you perk up and the badge has great meaning. Not because the badge itself is a threat to you, but because it actually communicates something to you. Namely, something behind the badge. In this sense, someone who has the backing and power of the United States government to enforce law. And so the badge takes on a different meaning. And it has great significance because of who and what it stands for. Or think about this, right, this ring. It's, it's white gold, it's nice, it's round, but sitting on this table, it has, an, it has fairly, uh, it has some value, but inherently it means nothing. It's communicating nothing by sitting on this table. But when I put, my fin- put it on my finger, and I hold Sarah's hand and walk down Gay Street, it communicates something very differently. It communicates that on June 25th, 2016, we made vows and pledges to God and one another for self-sacrificing love till death do us part. Inherently, it does, does nothing here, but on that day and every day since then on my finger, it communicates something significant. And so it is with bread and wine. We have been walking through the Lord's Supper, and two weeks ago, we literally demonstrated some of what may have happened at the Last Supper, and today, we enter into the actual elements of the Lord's Supper. The question is, what are they communicating to us? See, in and of themselves, they are merely bread and wine. Some of you may like bread more, some of you may like wine more, but inherently, they mean nothing in and of themselves. But with the shared table, alongside the prayers of the church, with the instruction of the word, by the presence of the spirit, it's actually how we engage God himself. The elements still maintain the fact that they are bread and wine on a table, but they communicate much more than physical sustenance and delight. They tell of another story, Specifically, of a story of a God who is love and justice, peace and mercy, forgiveness and compassion. And they invite you into that story. So, the roadmap for today is to talk about the Lord's Supper in two parts memory and presence. So, we'll start with memory. We treat memory as mere brain recall, where we recall facts about something mentally. And that is good, and we should do that. Uh, in fact, it's uh, paramount in the scripture that that happens. So look at Psalm 105 at the beginning. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell all of his wondrous works. Remember the wondrous, wondrous works he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Remembering is an act of worship. 
bringing to mind the graciousness of God is what we do when we've been overcome by the graciousness of God. That's a natural response. What God has done for us will naturally propel us to give thanks to Him. And the inverse is also true. To not remember would be to fail to obey. Remembering is what stirs our hearts. It's what it's the jarring of past events that propels us to present action. Look at uh, the 2 Peter 1, 5 and 9. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So typically the core issue in sin is actually just a lack of remembering God. You can almost drill down to every base sin, either lack of memory or lack of belief. Peter goes on to say in verses 12 through 15, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things." We need reminders. I mean, they are necessary. So much of Paul's writing in the New Testament was this act of reminding. What, uh, what did the churches know? What have they seen? What have they heard? And if you know anything about early church history, you know the majority of people in the church could not read. So it was literally a verbal, audible exhortation from the reader through the mouth of Paul to the church. We need reminders. They are critical for our brains. The problem is verbal reminders are actually not enough. And you know this because you practice it every day, right? You put sticky notes on your desk because you'll inevitably forget that to-do list. And you use the reminder app on your iPhone because you will inevitably forget that person's birthday. Some of you set alarm because you'll forget to wake up. Um, I mean, <laughs> inactionable things to remind us, things that we do are literally built into our lives. We are forgetful people and we need reminders. And while there are times for verbal reminders, much of the reminding we need is actually more important and a mere verbal prompt will not do. So the question becomes, what do we do? Well, we build memorials. Think about it from a massive scale, right? We just passed the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And if you haven't recognized, there are a thousand documentaries right now on 9-11. Uh, and if I may be so bold to sort of throw my hat in the middle of the ring, uh, One Day in America, the docu-series on Hulu, is the 9-11 docu-series to watch. Don't watch anything else. Um, it's very, very good. But towards the end of it, they interview a man who was in the tower when it collapsed. And he lived through it, and he now works at the 9-11 memorial. And he was asked what he wants people to take away from visiting the site. 
and I bet you can imagine what he said. I just don't want people to forget. I don't want them to forget. Why? Well, because for many of us, even though this particular day in history changed the course of much of history, it has changed how we move about in the world, uh, most of the time, we don't remember it. Maybe, maybe on a non-big anniversary year, we'll remember it for a total of about two weeks. Um, but the reality is we just forget. And so, in appropriate fashion, a memorial was built. And if you have been to the memorial, and you have heard the stories, and you have held the items, the debris, and you have seen the photos, and you have walked with your body around where the World Trade Center was, you are much less likely to forget. And memorials are built all over the place. I mean, we have memorials for battles fought in our land. We have war memorials. We have memorials as grave sites. Some of you have memorials that you do every week or every month or every year in your family to celebrate or commemorate or remember something or someone important and significant that has happened in your life. Those are all memorials. And memorials are literally woven throughout the story of Scripture. When God parted the Jordan River so the people could enter the Promised Land, He told them to take 12 stones from the riverbed to create a sign among you, a memorial forever. When God delivered the Israel from the Philistines, it says that Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And we looked at Passover last time, and it's very evident that the Passover meal was a memorial meal to celebrate, to eat, to remember the Exodus, to memorialize God's victory for the Israelites. And here's what we miss, I think. The Lord's Supper is a memorial meal. It's not merely an exhortation to jog your memory. It's a meal to place you in a larger story. And so we eat this meal consistently because we are forgetful people. And we do it around an actual table because we are an embodied people. And we do it with the family of God because we are a relational people, a part of a larger story. So think about it like this. You are sitting down with your mom and... She is showing you a photo album, and she points you to your great-grandmother Lois and explains how great a teacher she was, and your great-grandfather Alfred, who was an avid chess piece collector. Uh, I don't know why he collected chess pieces, but he did. So, um, but here's the thing. You, you did not know them. You never met them. You couldn't pick them out of a lineup. What is your mom doing? She's not jogging your memory. You, you don't know these people. She is literally placing you into a larger story, a story of your personal family lineage. The photo album is not meant to increase your memory. It's actually meant to enlarge your heart. It's meant to create in you an identity. You are you. This is where you came from. This is your great-grandmother. This is your great-grandfather. It's not your memory. It's your identity.
In the Jewish text, the Haggadah, it has this line. It was read every year at the Passover. It says, in every generation, each individual is bound to regard himself as if he personally had gone forth from Egypt. So the Israelites are taking the Passover thousands and thousands of years later. They are not the Israelites that exited from Egypt, okay? But they were eating the meal as if they were. They are an extension of the Exodus. They are part of the story. And in the same way, that is true of communion. We were not there on the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But here we are, eating and drinking the elements tied to the same story thousands of years later. It's the memorial of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it is the memorial of the death and resurrection of us. In the Lord's Supper, we are placed into a larger narrative of how God is righting the wrongs, how he has forgiven us and redeemed us and called us his children. It's our covenant with God. It's our moment to re-up our commitment. It is our moment to both in mind and in body remember who God is and who we are. And in biblical terms, if you remember, remembering is actually about covenanting, which brings us to God. Let's go back to Psalm 105. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant of Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion of the inheritance. And if you remember what comes in the next 20 verses, they're actually all actions done by God. He rebuked kings, he protected them from oppression, he brought plagues, he sent Moses, he performed wonders, he spread a cloud over them by day and fire by night, he gave them the land of nations. So what the psalmist means when he says that God remembers his covenant is that God acts, God does. He holds up his end of the bargain. There are numerous times in scripture where actually God builds a memorial, so he, and it actually says, particularly if you read the account of Noah and the rainbow, the memorial is built so that God would remember it, more so than even the people would remember his covenant. So it begs the question, does that mean that God intentionally forgets his covenant? Or does that mean that God could forget his covenant? And the answer is no. It is rather an embodied prayer by God's people to God to act, to do what he said he would do. God doesn't need something to remind him of what he said we do. God doesn't need memorials like the Lord's Supper to remind him of his covenant. We do. God is the perfect promise keeper. We are the ones who keep breaking it. God is the person who does, who does not go back on his word, and we are the flaky ones. So we need physical reminders of God's covenant, and we need embodied prayers to plead that God would act. And we know he will because we, he says he will. The problem is we don't ask. We don't ask. Jesus says in the Last Supper, 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So here's how it breaks down. God's promise was the forgiveness of sin. God's proof of that promise was the cross and resurrection. And God's memorial of the fulfillment of that promise is our meal. It is the ordinance that he has given the church for 2,000 years. In the meal, the bread and wine are the sign and seal of the promise that God forgives sins. All sin, any sin. It's unexplainable. And in the meal, the bread and wine remind us that we are his people committed to follow him. The meal reminds us of these great truths, but it doesn't just remind us. So let's talk about presence. There were some very large battle lines drawn in the history of the church over this specific thing. I am not going to be able to catch every nuance, and I'm going to paint with very broad strokes, so bear with me if it, uh, if it feels like I'm doing that, because I am. Um, so here we go. Catholicism believes the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus. This is known as transubstantiation. It's the thought that the inner essence of the actual bread and wine become Jesus himself. And while the outside remains the same, the inside does not. We would not agree with this, but let me just say this. I actually believe this is a well-intended attempt to figure out and explain the mystery of what God is doing at the supper. I don't agree with the conclusions. I think they're somewhat dangerous, and I'm going to explain why. But I do think it's a well-intended attempt. Here's why the view is dangerous. Because this view believes that Jesus is offered afresh or represented at communion. Meaning, in communion, Jesus gets re-sacrificed and the atoning work of Jesus must be continually performed by a priest each time it's taken. But we believe in Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, we know that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The sacrifice is complete once for all, not needed to be repeated, not possible to be repeated. It is a once for all time sacrifice, not a once for each time sacrifice. Luther, Martin Luther, believed Christ is physically present in the bread and wine. Call this consubstantiation. So Martin Luther, who many of us know and are grateful for, did not hold to the Catholic view, but he did believe that Jesus was under and with the bread and the wine. He refused to budge from the literal words of Jesus at the Last Supper, which said, this is my body. And the short version of how he got there was he, he believed Jesus had one body and two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and that once Jesus ascended into heaven, the qualities of his divine nature, such as his omnipresence, were given to his human nature, and thus Jesus' body is physically present everywhere, especially in communion. That is Luther's view. Zwingli believed the bread and wine remind us of Jesus. 
So Ulrich Zwingli was a Swiss reformer who had major issues with the Catholic Church and had great agreement with Martin Luther on everything except communion. While Luther would not budge from the saying, this is my body, Zwingli would not budge from the saying, do this in remembrance of me. As was the case in Passover, Zwingli viewed this meal as a memorial meal, one in which we remember what happened at the cross and tomb and recommitted our allegiance to Jesus. It's less about God's covenant with us and more about our commitment to Him. And interestingly enough, this is probably the most popularized contemporary evangelical view of communion. And then there is Calvin, which believed Christ is spiritually present in communion through the Holy And this view gets at where we land in communion. So we do not believe that Jesus is physically here with us in the same way that we do not believe people who have died are physically here with us. But we do believe that Jesus did physically rise and thus has given believers his spirit. It says in Matthew, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The spirit of Jesus is present when his followers are together. So the Lord's Supper is neither a sheer memorial where we play a memory game of what's happened in the past, nor is it a belief that the physical body of Jesus is with us now. We hold to the fact that Jesus is with us spiritually because of the Holy Spirit, which we believe that the indwelling of the Spirit, living in Jesus' followers. And when we gather here to pray, to sing, to listen, to open Scripture, to connect in community, we believe the Spirit of God is present. Jesus' body is not literally here with us, but because of His Spirit, communication and communion are no less heard. We just don't do a great job at listening. And this is where, for many of us, I think it gets difficult. If we can't see it, and it's not in front of us, we either become hyper-skeptical of everything, or prone to the winds of any and every feeling we experience. And Jesus knows this, and so he gives us the meal. The Lord's Supper is this beautiful spectacle of heaven and earth colliding, because the Lord's table is the Lord's. Calvin says, if this seems unbelievable... Let us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above our senses and how foolish it is to measure His immeasurableness by our measure. So let me give you an example of the Spirit of Jesus present with us in communion. Something that we do in Christian community quite frequently is when someone is struggling with addiction or someone is struggling with sin or someone's depressed or anxious or a variety of experiences that we have in the human realm, um, we say the words, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Those are true words. They are good words. We need to remind each other of those words. Hence the beginning of this when I said we need verbal exhortation. But what does it mean that Jesus is enough? Or better yet, How does one experience the phrase, Jesus is enough? What does Jesus is enough smell like? What does Jesus is enough taste like? 
Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't think that's just poetic language and artificial words David's using to describe his experience of God. It's actually much richer than that. Tim Chester has this zinger of a line where he says, the felt experience of Jesus tastes like red wine in the context of community and faith. The felt experience of Jesus tastes like sourdough bread in the context of belief and family. The bread and wine are physical signs of his spiritual presence. And spiritual, by the way, does not mean artificial, right? It's not magic, right? We don't believe in make, we're not here because we're sort of holding to some make-believe. We believe that Jesus was a physical person who physically walked the earth. He was the son of God. And he promised us that he would send us his spirit. And he has. If you've read John 14, it's this beautiful chapter on the spirit of God. And it says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And later, Jesus has a line that I would imagine most of us who have grown up in contemporary evangelical circles have a difficult time believing. Jesus says, it will be better for you, for me, to go away. Because then I will send you my spirit. And in the context of the meal, the spirit refreshes us every time we come to the table. Thomas Kramer says, just as the word of God preached puts Christ in our ears, so in the same way these elements of bread and wine joined to God's word put Christ in a sacramental way into our eyes, mouths, hands, and all our senses. This is the felt experience of Jesus at the table. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to walk away on cloud nine every time you eat communion. Or you're going to walk away even feeling better. Um... We live in a broken world and at times our feelings can really lie to us, which is why we're not banking on feeling God or worshiping our experience of God. We worship the unmovable, unshakable God who is much firmer than our feelings. It's why he gave us something so tangible like bread and wine, visible, holdable, eatable reminder of his presence and promise. Now having said that, I don't think we should constantly walk around skeptical and critical of everything we feel or someone else feels. God made people who feel. God feels. God is not emotional. His feelings are just perfect and ours are broken. If we shun every feeling, we are mere Gnostics who have a knowledge of facts about God, void of any real relationship with Him, and certainly void of any love of Him. I don't love objects. I love a person. Our relationship with God is not about facts. It's about intimacy. It's about presence. You being present to God and God presenting himself to you. And the beautiful aspect of our relationship to God is our longing to know him more. And that includes more about him. And the more we learn about him, the greater our desire for him grows, and the greater our desire grows, the more we experience his presence, the more we want to know him and about him. So when we talk about the presence of God around the table, experience is not everything, and it's not nothing. 
So let's be people who find some, some nuance, some, some wise, discerning nuance, who bank their lives on the Word of God and believe Jesus when He said He would send His Spirit. I think the challenge is sometimes, and I'm guilty of saying this, we say, if, if the bodily Jesus was here, then I would know. I would feel more convinced. I would, I would kind of feel like I'm Thomas, right? Everything I believe has been validated. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is right at, it's a fundamental misunderstanding and of reading in the entire Bible. Because right after the Lord's Supper, Peter says to Jesus himself, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus looks at Peter and says, on your back, I will build my church. And not hours later, not once, not twice, but three times Peter denies Jesus. And not only denies Jesus, but denies associating with anything to do with the people following Jesus. We are not unlike him. Nor are we unlike the Israelites who walked through the Red Sea, saw water fall from a rock, saw bread come from heaven, saw God spare their children in Egypt. They experienced victories that can only be described as miraculous, and they still made golden calves and bowed their knee. They had evidence of the glory of the Lord filling the literal temple where they worshipped. And the challenge was never proof of God's existence. That was never the issue. It was always a belief in God's goodness. And underneath belief is desire. We're not that different. We're just not that different. And so instead of looking for God to do extraordinary things through ordinary means, we should celebrate the fact that while sometimes that happens, most of the time, God uses ordinary people to do ordinary things with extraordinary love. And in the context of the supper, God uses the ordinary bread and the ordinary wine to replenish our hearts and remind us again that he has given us his body and his blood as markers of his love. Not ordinary things, extraordinary love. And our embodied experience of his extraordinary love is found around the table. And suddenly, a meal with friends gets transformed into a dinner with the family of God and Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, hosting us at his table. And if we're honest, I think a lot of us probably find that crazy or alarming. If, if we were to actually do some self-reflection, sitting at the table of God with the presence of God, that should probably stun us at some level. And we shouldn't be nonchalant about it. But the absurdity of God is that the invitation is the most inclusive invitation in the entire world. It's not a party of celebrities. It's a party of nobodies. Who are you? Who am I? I am a nobody. My name is not going to be in the history book of the world. There are 7 billion people in the world right now, relatively speaking, and no one knows you and no one knows me. We don't even register on the radar of the empires of the world. We're not power brokers. We're not even pawns. We're just taking up oxygen. <laughs> like, we're not doing anything seemingly significant in the world, in the eyes of the world. But in the kingdom of God, full dignity, clothed with grace, 
honor, crowned in glory, lavished in love, a brother or sister to Jesus, brought into the most beautiful, wonderful, diverse, history-shaping family the world has ever known. The genealogy of God. You know, I told someone this week, the thing about the love of God for nobodies like you and nobodies like me is that it's literally unexplainable. It's unexplainable. And our lives are marked by unexplainable reaction to an unexplainable God. And when we eat at the table, we do this. In our moments of doubt, we come to the table because we need the assurance of his love to us. In our moments of sin, we come to the table because we need the grace of his love to wash us. In our moments of weariness, we come to the table because we need the bread of life to nourish us. And in our moments of hopelessness, when we watch the world burn to the ground, we come to the table knowing this is the place that we will be forever, dining with God as host and us as guest. This is a future-telling event. Peace with God, assured of God, longing for a world made right and longing for me to be made whole. God has given us the supper because He knows we need it. We need more than verbal reminders. We need a sign and a seal of His promise because we have an internal problem. And look around us, we have an external problem. And it is the brokenness on this side of Eden. And if we're going to make it to that final day, we're going to need reminders of his love for us. A relationship with God requires two things, his presence and your presence. And every time we sit down at the table, we bring our presence to him, and he, will, he has promised to meet us with his. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we come to you, maybe even half-heartedly believing all of this is true. Even more so, we need your presence. Wake us up from the slumber. Grow in us an affection for you, a desire for you. Curving out time to be in your presence. And then getting cannonballed out into the world. Becoming the aroma of Jesus himself littering our community with love and grace and affection to the glory of God. Help us become people who live unexplainable lives because we serve an unexplainable God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.